Well, good morning and uh, welcome. My name is John, one of the pastors here, and uh, glad to have you worshiping with us. And uh, if you were looking in your bulletin and thought, oh, there's no sermon today, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Somehow I uh, forgot to put that in the bulletin, but uh, we still have a sermon. Um, and uh, we are looking at uh, Luke 7, verses 1 through 17, I believe. Yeah, Luke 7. 1 through 17, and uh, the title of it, if you want to put it in your notes, is He Came to Heal Us. Uh, So Luke 7, 1 through 17. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell you this, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd following along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up, and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Uh, Lord, all of us probably have all kinds of voices running through our head right now, things that are weighing us down, things that are distracting us. And Lord, you know them all. And we pray, Lord, that through the power of your Spirit, your words would cut through all that noise and speak to our souls, speak to our hearts. Reveal to us that deep, deep love and compassion of Jesus. And build faith in us, Lord, so we could learn to trust him more and more. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I remember a number of years ago, a ski trip, family ski trip, and I was, I think, in elementary school. Uh, I don't remember where it was, but it was at one of the bigger ski resorts in Colorado, one that we didn't often go to, and I didn't know it very well. And I was going to ski down this 
black run while my dad and, and sister were going to ski down a blue run uh, that kind of went parallel to it. And as I remember, this was the first time that I was off on my own skiing. And so I was a little bit nervous. And I had to, from the top of the lift, go down one run and then make a turn to another run. And then I think I had to make one more turn to get on that black run that I was going to go down and then meet my dad and sisters at the bottom where they all connected. And so I dropped down that main run and I was having fun with that freedom. I was having a little too much fun because before I realized it, I'd missed my turn that I was supposed to go down. And I didn't have a trail map and I didn't know the resort. And within a moment, this kind of excited boy felt like a very tiny little boy in the middle of a great big ski resort. And so I wasn't sure what to do, so I thought, well, let me go back where I'm supposed to be. And so I took off my skis and tried to carry them with my poles and started hiking back up this run to that turn I was supposed to go down. But if you've ever hiked in ski boots uh, while carrying ski poles and you're in elementary school, <laughs> it is really not easy. I mean, it amazes me. Kids can ski all day long, but the moment you ask them to carry their skis 100 feet to the car, they might as well be climbing Everest. And so I started to get worried because the time was ticking by and I knew my dad and sister would be there waiting for me. And this was before cell phones. So how would they know where I was? Would they still be there when I finally got down there? What if they weren't there when I got down there? And in that worry, suddenly, Appear, right before me appeared a red ski jacket. It was a ski patroller. Uh, she was an older woman, at least to me, probably in her 20s. And uh, she asked me uh, what I was doing. And my memory's a bit vague, but I remember her taking me to a little hut nearby, and she gave me some hot chocolate and pulled out a map, and we figured out where I was supposed to go. And in that moment, under her care and with her knowledge of the mountain, I felt safe. I didn't know exactly how to get to my dad, but I trusted that she could. And after a bit, she took me out, and to my surprise, we actually skied back down that run I'd been climbing up. And I was a bit embarrassed by it all, so I made sure to show her how good a skier I was as we went down. And sure enough, I connected back with my dad. At some point in your life, you're going to be in a place where you realize you can't save yourself. You're too worn out. You're in too deep. It might be in your 40s, your 50s. It could be an elementary school kid on a ski trip. But in that moment, when you realize you can't do it on your own, nothing feels better to be in the care of someone you trust can make it right. And that's the picture we have of Jesus today. Two stories showing us how Jesus is someone that you can put your trust in. Jesus is someone you can rest your life in. Jesus came to heal us. That's what I want you to remember. Jesus came to heal us. And we're going to look at this in two ways. That one, he is enough. And then two, he has compassion. So first, he's enough. Uh, we've been in Luke 6 for a really long time in that sermon that Jesus spoke. And now, after that sermon is done, Jesus travels to Capernaum. And Capernaum is a region around the Sea of Galilee, which is the region where Jesus grew up. It's his hometown. It's where his ministry started. And in that region is a Roman centurion. Now, you're probably familiar with that term. A Roman centurion is a soldier who commanded usually about a hundred Roman troops. 
And these people were also community leaders and had a good bit of authority and power within their jurisdiction. So if you remember some of the history, Rome had conquered uh, all of the land of of Israel, plus most of the Mediterranean. And to help keep the peace, there would be outposts of Roman soldiers throughout the country, throughout the lands. And often these uh, outposts would be commanded by a centurion. And one of the centurion's favorite servants has gotten ill and is quickly declining, and he looks like he's close to death. And the centurion realizes this is out of my league. I I can't do anything. But Jesus' reputation, he's gone viral. The centurion knows of this man named Jesus, and so he sends some Jewish elders to go and ask if Jesus would come to help. And he believes, he sends these Jewish leaders because he believes that they would have a better chance of persuading Jesus to come there than if just the centurion went on his own. But we also learn that he's very humble. He's he doesn't believe that his, he doesn't want to command Jesus into doing these things. So these Jewish leaders go and they tell Jesus, this man has been a friend of ours. He's, he's a friend of the Jews. He's also wealthy, it turns out. He financed the building of their synagogue. We've seen Jesus often worshiping in the synagogue. Synagogues were local churches or congregations. They often had a building and they met there each week to worship. And here this Roman centurion who wasn't a member of their congregation respected and cared for the Jews enough that he helped finance their house of worship. And Jesus is moved by this story, and so he goes with the elders to see the centurion and his servant. But as Jesus is coming there, the centurion knows he's, he's on his way, and before he can get to the house, he sends some more people to basically stop Jesus and, and tell them, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I didn't consider myself even worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then he goes on to say, like, I'm a man who's under authority. I I know what it is to receive orders, but I'm also a man in authority. I know what it is like to to give orders and to have my subordinates obey me. And he, he says, Jesus, I believe, I know you are someone who is in authority. Just give the word, and you will be obeyed. And what does Jesus have the authority over? Well, it's not people, but it's, it's sickness, health, even life or death. Jesus doesn't even need to be there, the centurion believes. He said, from a distance, you can command these forces and it will heal my servant. And Jesus hears this and he's amazed. He said, I've never seen such faith even in Israel. Now, that's a, a bit of an insult because of all the people, the Jews, Jesus' own people who'd been waiting for him, should have the greatest faith. And yet this outsider demonstrates that faith. We see something of Jesus' humanity and personality here. I I love to just picture the the scene. Maybe Jesus hears this and you see this broad smile and maybe even a laugh across Jesus' face when he hears this and his eyes brighten and he says, I've never seen such faith. And that's all it takes. The men return to the house and the servants healed. And what I want you to notice in this first story is the faith the centurion places in Jesus. He doesn't need to see Jesus. He has genuine humility. You know, sometimes if we want someone to do something nice for us or we feel indebted to someone, we feel this need to to be there in person, but the centurion has such humility that he's okay with not even meeting Jesus. He doesn't even see himself as worthy to talk with Jesus, as worthy to have Jesus in his own home. 
And yet at the same time, he has this incredible trust in him. He puts his trust in Jesus. Jesus can do this. He just needs to say the word. He doesn't try to command Jesus as, you know, sometimes people who have a lot of authority think they can just boss everybody around. No, he asks Jesus. And what kind of faith do you put in Jesus? Do you have a faith that is maybe similar to this centurion's, right? Often, though, our faith is only as strong as our ability to figure out a solution. We tend to trust Jesus only as much as you can kind of trace out a plan that might work. But what is beautiful about the centurion's faith is he realizes there's nothing he can do. And yet he still has faith that Jesus could fix it if he wanted to. He doesn't seem to assume Jesus is going to fix it. It doesn't seem that Jesus owes this to him. He makes a humble request. And yet he believes Jesus can heal him if he wants to. He puts all his chips in with Jesus. He trusts his life with him. And this is what is remarkable about this centurion, this outsider. It's humility marked with faith. You know, sometimes we struggle with both those. You struggle with having that humility, or you struggle with having that faith. You struggle with, we don't see the centurion working six plans. All right, we're going to go to Jesus. We're going to go to these other religious leaders. We're going to go find some doctors and hoping that Jesus will boost one of those plans and it will actually work. You know, that's what some of us tend to do when we face these situations, right? Where you have a loved one that's suffering or something is spiraling out of control. You have control issues. And so you say, I need to find a way to fix this. And so it's impossible for you to rest when the future is uncertain. You can't feel safe when you, feel, when you see dark clouds coming on the horizon. Because in the end, you aren't trusting Jesus, you just trust yourself. And you think, oh, well, of course I'm going to pray, of course I'm going to ask Jesus, but he'll you know, maybe boost my chances from 65 to 70%. But in the end, it's all about you. Some of us on the other side, though, we, we don't have these control issues. You have more of like a, an Eeyore-type faith. You know, Jesus probably doesn't care about me. He's not going to do anything to help me. You live this life of resignation. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but a lot of good that's done me. My life still stinks. Nothing's changing. But here we see this beautiful mix, this humility I'm not worthy of Jesus. Do you have that humility? The you know, one way to check is, do you get upset when God doesn't answer your prayers like you want him to? And that's an indication you're not humbly trusting him. You're trying to command him and you get upset because he's not listening to your orders. And we also see this remarkable faith of the centurion. I know he can do something. What is it that you are resting your faith on? Are you resting it on the end in yourself and your own ability to fix it? Or are you putting your entire life into Jesus' hands? And if you're resting your faith on yourself, you'll never be able to truly rest. It's only when giving everything to Jesus 
that you can find true rest for your soul. So can you rest when the future is uncertain? Can you still find peace when there's dark storm clouds out there? Can you say, like Psalm 46, one of my favorite psalms, God is our refuge and our strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear, not when everything's good, it says, so we will not fear when earthquakes come and mountains crumble into the sea. Can you be still in those moments and know that he is God? And this brings us then to our second point. He has compassion. A bit of time passes, and Jesus heads to now a, another small town, kind of southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And there's people following him. He's got this group, and as his group is headed into town, they start to reach another group that is headed out of town, and it's a funeral procession. And on that funeral buyer is the body of this young boy, the only son of his mother. And she's a widow. This is a tragic death. The whole town has showed up for this service. Everybody knows about it. And I love verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. His heart went out to her when he sees her mourning. Now, often, it's usually not a great idea to tell someone who's crying or grieving, don't cry. Right? Sometimes it's okay to cry. Sometimes it's good to cry. Life hurts. Jesus himself wept at a funeral. But we can see how Jesus' words are appropriate because of what happens next. Then he went up and he touched that buyer, and the pallbearers stood still. And Jesus says, young man, get up. And this dead boy sits up. And he starts talking. And I love that funny little detail. He starts talking like, what was he saying, right? Like, did he pick up his last conversation? Does he like, you'll have no idea what I, where I've just been. Like, what, what is he saying? Was it just gibberish? It, it reminded me of, I'm sure some of you saw this video a number of years back of, I think it was actually happened here in Utah. There was a man who was in surgery and uh, he came out of surgery. And when he came to, he's still a little bit loopy from the drugs. And he's in the recovery room and he sees his wife, but he doesn't realize it's his wife. And he looks at her, he's like, who is this beautiful woman? And it's like, I'm your wife. And he's so amazed, like, no way, I married her. And he goes on and on, right? It's, it's what do people say when they come out? What, what did this young boy say as he wakes up from the dead and he's sitting on top of a funeral buyer? And then Jesus gives him back to his mother. She probably didn't stop crying, but had even more tears, but this time tears of joy. And everybody is watching two processions that met at the city gate, and they're amazed, and they say, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. Sometimes you face these situations in your life, and you know that God could do something, but you doubt he cares enough to do something for you. Or maybe you feel like God is far off and is too busy with other people's problems to pay any attention to you. And the hits keep coming in your life. Your spouse dies. And now you're a widow trying to raise a young family. And then your son dies. And loneliness takes on a whole new meaning. And now you're walking out of town with your son laid on this funeral buyer, 
His skin is cold to the touch, and this is your last goodbye, and you can barely see in front of you because of all your tears of how your life's turned out. But it just so happens that Jesus is walking into this town, this small, no-name town out in the countryside, one that people don't often come to. But of all the towns that Jesus could have walked into, he walks into this town. And of all the times he could have been walking into it, he walks into it at the very moment when this funeral procession is walking out of it. And he sees this young mom weeping because she's burying her only son. And her husband is dead. And her life has hit a dead end. And Jesus sees her in that moment, and his heart goes out to her. He's moved. He has compassion. And her life has changed forever. And why does Jesus do this? Well, it doesn't seem that it's because there's anything worthy about her. He doesn't look at her and say, do you deserve this? And say, let me check my list. Have you been nodding or nice this year? No, why does Jesus do this? Because he sees the depth of her despair. He sees those peals of tears running down her face and the life that has been sucked out of her because of her loss after loss after loss. And Jesus is moved by that. He cares for the brokenhearted. Isaiah 42, verse 3, I love this verse. It shows us Jesus' heart. It says, a bruised reed, he being Jesus, is a prophecy of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Do you feel like you're a bruised reed? Last year we planted a bunch of little lilac bushes uh, in our yard, and I bought them from Costco, and they got shipped, which meant they were just like a bunch of little twigs with some roots. And, and I put them in the ground, and they were so fragile at that moment. And, and during the time of shipping and getting them out and putting them in the ground, some of the little branches broke off. And, and I've tried so many times when this happens to my plants to hope, you know, if it's not a big break, oh, it's just a, a little crack, a little bruise, maybe it'll heal. But it never works, right? Day after day, that life gets sucked out of that little broken branch, and before long, it's just a shriveled brown twig. And I've learned the best thing when you get even that bruised branch is just to cut it off and let the process start of healing and growing. But what kind of gardener is Jesus? He doesn't break that bruised reed off. He doesn't say, oh, we'll just rip this off and it'll heal. He doesn't cut that partially broken branch. He looks at it with tender care, and he can heal it. He has compassion for it. And that's the compassion that Jesus has for you who are broken, who are hanging on by a thread, who feel like, well, maybe it's best if I just have my life cut off. But Jesus sees you, and he cares for you. And it's the same with that little ember, all that's left of that strong bonfire that's gone cold over the night. And maybe that's how your faith feels. You know, my faith used to be strong. I used to believe everything was going well, but but now it feels like my faith is just this tiny little ember that is about to go out. And it's been a long, cold night, and it's not going to make it to morning. 
But Jesus doesn't discard that ember. He doesn't toss it out and start over. He stands watch over that ember through the winter solstice, and he doesn't let it go out. And this is how he cares for you. In your weakness, in your brokenness, your weakness cannot be stronger than his tenderness. With Jesus, your life will never be in a place where he just looks at you and says, well, there's nothing more we can do. Got to cut her off. No, he has come to heal his people. Richard Sibbs was this Puritan pastor, lived a couple hundred years ago, and he, he wrote a whole book on that one verse from Isaiah. It's called The Bruised Reed. I encourage you to check it out sometime. And in it, he writes, Weakness with watchfulness will stand when strength with too much confidence fails. Weakness with the acknowledgement of it is the fittest seat and subject for God to perfect his strength in. For consciousness of our infirmities drives us out of ourselves to him in whom our strength lies. Every one of us is kind of like a little kid trying to carry his skis up a hill and tripping every few steps. We're all weaker than we realize. Some of us are deeply afraid of admitting our weakness, so we do all kinds of things to make us look strong and capable. Others of us just wallow in our weakness and just obsess about it, and you never give it to Christ. And Jesus wants you to see that he sees you, that he can care for you. His compassion for you is so much deeper than you realize. And the question we all ask is when you read a story like this, you say, well, why doesn't just Jesus heal everything now? Right? Why can't he encounter me when I'm walking out crying? My loved one's still dead. My health is only getting worse. I still don't have a good job. My depression hasn't gotten any better. I don't know why this world has such deep hurts. Every one of you knows it. I often wish Jesus would do more to stop the pain. And we cry out, how long, O Lord? But Jesus' words in our passage here don't cry. I think we should see them as prophetic. That it's okay to cry now. Life hurts. We lose things. But remember, you won't be crying forever. That in some ways, we live in that time between when Jesus said, don't cry, and he reached out and he touched that boy's funeral buyer and said, get up. And for that widow, that was just maybe a few seconds. But for us right now, that's until Jesus comes back. We're living in that time between when he says, don't cry, and he makes all things new that his miraculous healing is a preview for us of what life will look like in Jesus' kingdom when he has completed his work of making that new heavens and that new earth. It's that picture in Revelation 20. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow 
or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And then it continues, the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. So will you rest your faith in Jesus right now? Will you trust that that gap between him saying don't cry and that boy getting up, it will be your lifetime, it will be longer than that, but will you trust that one day your faith will become sight? That Jesus is the one who can heal all your wounds, he can make you whole again. Will you realize that all of us are like that little boy in a big ski area and you can't get out on your own? And to put your trust in the one who can get you home. He's the only one that can forgive your sins. He's the only one that can heal your heart. And he loves you even in your weakness more than you realize. And he has so much compassion for you. Jesus came and he's coming back again to make everything new and holy and whole. And that means he came to make you holy and whole. The Psalms remind us that Jesus has kept every single one of your tears in his bottle. He's recorded every sorrow in his book. And though this night is long, joy comes in the morning. And on that day when he's returned, and he's done his work of making everything new, with his tender, with his tender hands, he will wipe every single tear you've ever cried away forever. And you will be healed, and you'll be whole, and you'll be home. And that's where we're headed right now. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, Help us to first see our weakness. Lord, for those of us living in denial about it, give us the courage to see how broken we are. But Lord, we also pray that you would help us to see how caring you are. Let us not continually dwell on our weakness and all the ways that we've messed up but to see that Jesus loves us in the midst of our weakness. And his heart has compassion for us in the midst of our tears. And he will heal us. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. And we now come to that time of confession. Confession.